Happy Mother's Day. Our text today is the account of the um, the pursuit and the winning of a bride for Abraham's son Isaac. And I want to begin by reading chapter 24, Genesis 24, the whole chapter, not simply the verses at the end. I'll make some comments about the whole chapter. Um, Genesis chapter 24. No wonder I'm in Deuteronomy. said the law of divorce, I'm thinking. I thought I was preaching on motherhood and marriage. Okay, Genesis 24. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. Now, Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Suppose the woman is not willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Then Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this, my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. He said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today. And show loving kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now, may it be that the girl to whom I say, please, let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown loving kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please, let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand and gave him a drink. Now, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. 
Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her wrists, weighing ten shekels in gold, and said, Whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge at your father's house? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said to him, We have plenty of both straw and feed and room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. When he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, This is what the man said to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside, since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? So the man entered the house. Then Laban unloaded the camels, and he gave straw and feed to the camels, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. But when food was set before him to eat, he said, I will not eat until I have told my business. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich, and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants and maids and camels and donkeys. Now Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master in her old age, and he has given him all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take away from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live, but you shall go to my father's house and to my relatives and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Suppose the woman does not follow me. He said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you to make your journey successful. And you will take a wife for my son, from my relatives, and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my relatives. And if they do not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. So I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you will make my journey on which I go successful, behold... I am standing by the spring, and may it be that the maiden who comes out to draw, and to whom I say, please, let me drink a little water from your jar, and she will say to me, you drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder and went down to the spring and drew, and I said to her, please, let me drink. She quickly lowered her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will water your camels also. So I drank, and she watered the camels also. I won't make this point later because I already preached this sermon once in the earlier service. So let me stop right here and say, if you're kids, you're a young man, you're a young woman, and you would not offer to water the camels also. Guess what? You're out of luck. Do you understand? This woman had a work ethic. How much water would it have been for Abraham? Yeah. Here it is. 
no skin off her back, how much water would it have been for the camels? Hundreds and hundreds of pounds. Don't you think it's a little thing whether or not you have a work ethic? And she had a maid. Undoubtedly, she could have told her maid to do it for him, for her. God loves work. Work was in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. And when you go to heaven, you're going to work. All right, all right, all right, ran over. I'll go back into the text, but now I completely forget where I was. Does anybody remember what verse am I on? 47, thank you. <clears throat> she watered the camels also. That's what got me started. Okay. Verse 47, then I asked her and said, whose daughter are you? And she said, the daughter of Bethuel, Nair's son, whom Milcah bore to him. And I put the ring. On her earlobe. All right. I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists. And I bowed low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who had guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. So now, if you're going to deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me. And if not, let me know that I may turn to the right hand or the left. Then Laban and Bethuel replied, The matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord. The servant brought out articles of silver and articles of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. Then he and the men who were with him ate and drank and spent the night. When they arose in the morning, he said, send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, let the girl stay with us a few days, say ten. Afterwards, she may go. He said to them, do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we will call the girl and consult her wishes. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Thus they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. Then Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac had come up from going to bear Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. And then she took her veil and covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is the word of the Lord. A number of years ago, Joseph was home, being homeschooled. And I'm a terrible teacher. 
the only thing I'm capable of doing is sharing with uh, people I'm around the things I'm learning and the things I love and the things I hate. And I was up in the bedroom reading G.K. Chesterton, The Everlasting Man. And as I read this chapter in the book, I started laughing and laughing and laughing. And when I finished the chapter, I had sometimes just been guffawing at this chapter of a book written by a dead white man. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe... I can simply teach Joseph to love the things I love because I just felt awful as a teacher, <laughs> you know. So Joseph was down studying at the desk in the living room, the dining room. I went down and I said, Joseph, listen to this. And that's all I've ever done to teach my children. The things I love, I read to them. That's it. And so I sat next to, to Joseph and I read G.K. Chester. Now, remember, this is a sophomore in high school. All right. And Joseph laughed and laughed and laughed at this chapter of G.K. Chesterton. Now, why am I telling you that? You know what the chapter was about? The chapter was about scholars, the academy, the university. And the whole chapter was making fun of the, the academy, the university. It was ridiculing professors. Now, what about... <clears throat> Well, the particular thing was that it was talking about how professors today think that they can go back in time and tell you what prehistoric and ancient men were like. All right. And so Chesterton talks about what everybody at the academy today thinks prehistoric ancient men were like. Right. And of course, what do they all think? All of them think this. All of them think that prehistoric ancient men were patriarchs. And of course, you know, that's nasty, all right, and that patriarchs were to be identified by this, that these were men that would occasionally come back from the hunt and see a woman and grab her by the hair and drag her into the cave and have their way with her. That's a patriarch, all right, and of course... We sophisticates today who love women, you know, who honor women, who have finally allowed women to rise to the place that God created them to be so that 1.3 million of them can kill their unborn children every year in our nation. And so that they can make up the, the rise in poverty statistics for our nation year after year, ever since no-fault divorce went through, just statistical truth. And they can carry their STDs, and we can divorce them when we get tired of their flesh after they've given birth to our children. And they can work along with us so that when they get home, they can work Separate from us, because we won't work when we get home. They will do all the housework. They will take care of the children. They will do everything at home, as well as earning an income at work. But we today, oh man, we honor women, don't we? I mean, if there's one thing the academy will teach you, it is that finally today we honor women. And those patriarchs, those 
those ancient men, those guys that used to grab women by the hair and pull them into the cave and have their way with them. And then Chesterton says this. He says, but you know, what do we actually know about those ancient men? And he says, what we actually know about them is that they, on the cave walls, would draw very beautiful pictures of deer. I mean, that's the only evidence we have. And then he says, you know, if you were to take, you know, 10 billion monkeys and put them in a cave and give them each crayons, never in a billion years would there be even the antlers of a deer. Never would they draw a deer. Now, what's his point? Well, his point is that the one thing we actually know about those men is that they were artists and saw beauty. I mean, do you get it? And here we are in our snobbery, and we're like, you know, you know, nasty, nasty, nasty brutes. Until we came along, no one loved their mother. No one loved their daughter. No one loved their father. No one loved their son. There was no natural affection. There was just brute strength dragging into the cave and having their way with her. And that's exactly what American men watch in their, for their entertainment. And that's exactly what women aspire to today. And today, women, instead of just simply giving themselves to the conflict and bloodshed of childbirth, are, after they get done giving birth to us, sent over to Iraq to shed their blood again to protect us. And we think, we think that the patriarchs were brutes. Now, if you want to know what the patriarchs are actually like, here it is. This is God's word, and it's true. This is what they're actually like. But you know, if you were to read a commentary written in the last 50 years, it would be amazing how that commentary would just blip right over top of all the significant points that conflict with our culture today. You can be sure that scholars have learned what not to notice in the biblical text. Now, what is there to notice here? If we actually believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, the Greek word is theopneustos, theo, God, neustos, that's like pneumonia, pneumatic hose, all right? God breathed, all Scripture is God breathed and is profitable, then this chapter of Scripture is God breathed and it's profitable, right? So how may it profit us? Well, let's just go through it. Verse 1, Abraham was old. Here's, here's, here's something you learn from this. The godly man, when he gets old, does what? He provides for those that will be left after him. Isn't that a godless bumper sticker in America today that says, I'm spending my children's inheritance? Is there a more godless place than the slot machines in a casino where all the blue hairs spend their money? Abraham, as he died, as he got ready to die, was seeing to the provision of the succession of God's covenant community. And he loved his, his progeny, his descendants, and he provided for them. So here Abraham is getting old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed him in every way, and he said to his servant, the oldest of his household, how long had this servant been with Abraham at this point? Well over 50 years. 
He said to his servant, the old of his household, who had charge of all that he owned. You know what Calvin says here at this point? Now, it is true that Calvin is an old, old man, long dead, centuries dead, 500th anniversary right right now of what? His birth. Thank you, our resident historian. Um, <clears throat> Calvin says about this, this verse and a number of other places in it, he says, note the authority of Abraham over his servant and note the submission of the servant to the authority of his master. And note the delegation of authority to the servant. And note how the son submits to the authority of the servant out of submission and respect for the authority of his father. Isn't that weird? Never in a million years would a commentator note this today. Why? Because every single one of us in this room hates authority. If you want to understand the modern world, you don't have to know anything else than I hate authority. And you will have more self-awareness and more self-knowledge than 999 of all the people around you. Just say to yourself, I hate authority. And guess what? You'll be completely self-aware. All right? (laughs) So here we have this servant. And Abraham delegates authority. I once was in a church in, in this community. A psychology professor wrote me a letter attacking church membership and everything. And he said in that letter, and I've mentioned this to you before, I'll keep hitting you with it. He said, Jesus does not, Jesus does not exercise authority over the church. Jesus does not exercise authority over the church. He shares authority with the church. Well, if I share with you my bubblegum, do you have to take it? Will I judge you on the basis of whether or not you accept what I share with you? No. No skin off my back. You don't want to share with me? That's fine. More for me. If I delegate authority to you and you refuse it, that's a serious thing. And that's, we just hate authority. And so what happens is Abraham is the patriarch. That means father rule. That's all it means. Let's demythologize it. Patrer, arch, right? Patriarch ruler. He delegates it to the servant. <clears throat> and not just any authority, not, you know, where to take the cows, but rather the selection of a wife for his son. And so this servant has authority delegated to him, and then his entire life goal is to fulfill the authority that has been delegated to him by his master. He selects the woman, and then what happens? He brings her back to Isaac, and Isaac takes her into the tent and marries her. Now, what does that teach us? That teaches us that the authority of Abraham was so clear that when he delegated to his servant, it then became the authority over his son. And his son submitted to the servant out of submission to the father. Now, you know what Calvin says at this point? Calvin says... Thus Abraham demonstrated an authority that many fathers can't exercise over their own flesh and blood son. Do you resemble that implication? Let me tell you, we can talk all we want about children who submit to their parents. Where there are children who don't submit to their parents, in most cases... The father has failed. 
This is not just telling us good things about the servant and good things about Isaac. This is telling us good things about Abraham. Do you understand that? That old family lived to please the patriarch. If you're young and you've just been married, you make sure that your wife and that your children submit to you. Because if they don't, your entire life is going to be the pain of rebellion. The rebellion of your wife and the rebellion of your children. And so what? Does that mean that you go home to the cave and grab them by the hair and drag them in and have your way with them? No, it doesn't. It means that when you read in Proverbs where it says, My son, give me your heart, you realize that has more to do with the father than with the son. How does a father get his son's heart? Well, Brian, stand, please, right away. Stand. No, 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 no. Do what you were doing and stand. That's how a father gets his son's heart. I remember sitting in church Sunday mornings, and my father would take his hand, and he'd have it on my back, and he'd just rub my back. And so as I listened to the preaching of God's word, do you think I was receptive? I was more receptive to the preaching of God's word than I was to Sunday lunch. Because Sunday lunch didn't taste as good as my father's hand. My wife grew up. They sat a pew in front of us. And... You know what she did during church Sunday morning? She sat next to her daddy, ten kids. And as she sat in church, her father had pronounced veins. And she would take her finger and trace his veins and shove the blood around on top of his hand. How do we get the hearts of our son? We touch them. Do you know how much touch there is in Scripture? It's all over the place. All over the place, we have fathers and sons touching and hugging and kissing. In fact, we have Paul doing that with the Ephesian elders. Hugging and kissing, hugging and kissing. Butterfly love, butterfly kisses. Nobody does sentiment like men. Women try, but they can't get close. My son, give me your heart. Brute authority never works. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. You have to love those that you want to submit to you. Now, do I have to love the policeman before he has the right to give me a ticket? No. I mean, that's ridiculous. Everybody talks about exercising authority as a right today. It's not a right, it's a duty. All right? And I don't have to love the judge to be sentenced by him. And you don't have to be in relationship with your elders to have them rebuke you. The rebuke is the relationship. I mean, you get it? In other words, this doesn't mean that we all justify a rebellion by walking around saying how our husbands have failed us and our mothers have failed us and the elders have failed us and the police have failed us and the judges have failed us and, and 
After all, Barack Obama doesn't have a relationship with me. So why do I have to submit to him? I mean, it's just ridiculous, right? We're under authority because God is the Father and the Creator. And he has delegated his authority. So if you don't want to submit to the authorities that God has put over you, because you're not in relationship with them, all you have to do is be in relationship with God. That's it. And if you love God, you will submit to those who are in authority over you, particularly the bad ones, because, of course, as Elizabeth Elliot says, submission doesn't start until you disagree. <laughs> okay? And so right away in verse 2, we have this concept that makes this different than every other church that you've ever been in in your life. This concept of authority, loving authority. Because every other church will pander to you and never, ever, ever mention it, let alone exercise it. You know, it is amazing to me how blind authorities can be when they want to be. Having absolutely no clue who their son is interested in and intending to marry. Having absolutely no clue that that man is beating his wife during the week. It's amazing how pastors and elders can have women who are beaten by their husbands and have no clue about it. This is mind-boggling. Young girls who are being molested by their stepfathers. And I, I, I haven't noticed anything. Monkey see no evil, hear no evil, do no evil. And so the entire responsibility falls on the mother and the daughters to discipline the father the predator, because all the authorities have no clue what's going on. Let me tell you something. If you're in a position of authority and you don't know the destruction of the people under your care, the day will come when you will answer to God for that. And all of America denies that. Everybody's walking around saying, I have no clue. Verse 3. I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. Now, who did Abraham live among? He lived among the Canaanites. Did he have good relationships with them? Yes, he did. Was he a foreigner? Yes, he was. He was a foreigner who had good relationships with his neighbors. And so what would be the natural thing to do? The natural thing to do would be to intermarry. Because then the relationships would be solidified for coming generations. But Abraham makes the servant swear he will not take a wife from among the Canaanites for his son. Why? Everything about this chapter goes completely against who we are today. 
All right? It has authority right at the beginning and all throughout. You know what else it has? It has distinctions. And if anything is hated about as much as authority by postmoderns, it's distinctions. Postmoderns hate distinctions. That's you. You don't ever want any distinction to be made between anything, anywhere, anytime, for any reason. No distinctions. And so that's why everybody says, we were talking to Michelle this last week up at the hospital room. Dave Carell and I went up. And she was talking about how somebody came in to visit her in the room and said to her, this isn't fair. What isn't fair? Well, she's having to lie in a bed so that her twins will survive in her womb. This isn't fair. Now, what is behind that statement that we hear all the time, that this isn't fair? Well, the minute an American says the word fair, what you mean is that there can be no distinction whatsoever for any reason between people. And so when you say this isn't fair when somebody's suffering, what are you really saying? Well, what you're really saying is that it is not right for God to cause one person to have burdens that another person doesn't have. That's what they mean. It isn't fair. They may not say God, but they're accusing God of injustice. Because Americans believe that the only way anything can be fair is if there's absolutely no distinction between anyone for any reason at any time. Everybody has to have equal intellectual ability, equal access to money, equal job prospects, equal education, equal, equal, equal everything. But hey, I'm genetically fat. And so I'm not equal. In fact, you know what I want to do? I want to start an affirmative action society for colorblind people. Because it is so unfair how I'm treated in this world. I mean, seriously. Do you know how many times a day I have to have people look at me like I'm weird? I was last night trying to find some stuff for my wife. And I was all alone. There was no sales clerk in the store to help me. And so I asked a woman back in the back section if she would please describe to me what I was looking at. So she describes it, telling me that there are pears and some other fruit. And, of course, I knew that. And so she got all done her description. I said, no, the colors. And she went like this at me, you know, like, what is wrong with you? And I said, for, for the 100,000 sign, I'm colorblind. And then it's like, oh, well, the colors are, you know. How about when you're driving down the street and there's a blinking light, right? Well, if it's in a row of three, you know what color it is. But if it's all alone, you don't know if it's yellow or red. Any of you colorblind? You know what I'm talking about? You? Well, but you're blind blind. I'm so glad she said it because I couldn't have said it if she didn't say it. Now, what does this have to do with the text? God, from all eternity, has chosen some to be saved, and some to be damned. And the Canaanites were damned. 
And that's why Abraham would not allow his son to marry them. Because Abraham was not going to do missionary dating. He was not going to do missionary marriage. He was not going to make an amalgamation of God's covenant people and those who have lived in defiance of their creator. He was not going to do it. And you go, see, I told you, you hate distinctions. It's not fair. See? Listen, it doesn't matter what you think of God's actions. He's God. And if you have a God that it matters to him what you think, your judgments of his fairness, you have an idol. You do not have the living God. Because the living God is sovereign. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's true. He is compassionate and tender. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But you know something in Hebrews? It says our God is a consuming fire. Scriptures also say, vengeance is mine. I shall repay, saith the Lord. Scripture also says that when the judgment comes, those who have refused to repent and to cling to his son and his blood will call for the hills to fall on them. Don't patronize God. He doesn't need your approval. He needs your worship. And he doesn't even need it. He commands it. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. Unconditional, unilateral, complete surrender to God. That's it. And so Abraham says, no amalgamation. No trying to blur the distinction between the people of God and the people that are given over to God's wrath. My son will not marry the Canaanites. All right? But you will go to my country. And then notice verse 5 again. Who are these nasty patriarchs? Look at verse 5. What does it tell you about these nasty patriarchs? Huh? What does it tell you? I'm excited to tell you. Come on, Kristen, say it. They ask the woman. Now, can you imagine that? These men with the nasty reputation of grabbing women by the hair and pulling them into the cave to have their way with them are actually concerned what the woman thinks. In fact, not only concerned, by the way, how old was Abraham? 40. Or Isaac, yeah. How old was Rebecca? Let me give you a clue. Rebecca was about the same age as Mary when God came upon her through the Holy Spirit and she was with child. Not 20. 14. Probably about 14. Jewish tradition tells us Rebecca was 14 at this time. Certain that Mary was somewhere around that age, all right? And what did they do? You remember when the servant says, it's time for me to go, let me take her? What do they say? You remember? We'll ask her. And then they ask her. 
we're in a mess today. A terrible mess. Where everything that's wrong is right and everything that's right is wrong. Where a woman, instead of giving birth to, she kills her unborn child. Where men are predators against women instead of serving them and protecting them like Christ does his church. We're in a terrible mess today. And oftentimes when you're in a terrible mess and you decide to repent and make things right, you go into a terrible mess in the other direction. Have you ever noticed that? And when it comes to the marriage of our children, our parents, all they cared about was that we would get the diplomas and the degrees and the professional accreditation that they wanted that would make us financially secure, right? That's all our parents cared about. And so they were happy for us to fornicate while we were at college and while we were in grad school so long as eventually we'd have the diploma and we'd be financially secure. They were happy for us to not have children with our wife as long as we got the diploma and we were financially secure. And so now we try to correct it. What happens is we move into something called patriarchy, which bears little to no resemblance to what we see in this chapter, where, you know, the father is... And so there are these ministries built around some artificial view of the headship of the father and the husband. And they're very, some of them are very wealthy ministries that are talking about the authority of the father and the husband, right? And it's real weird because really the ministries are not aimed at fathers and husbands at all. They're aimed at mothers and wives. And that's your first clue. And you know how you know that they're aimed at the mothers and wives? All you have to do is look at their graphics. Because graphics don't lie. And the graphics of everything they do are so, so misty and cloudy and pretty. And as a man, you want to puke when you look at them. It's so cloying and sentimental and, you know. And so this this movement has come up with something they call courtship. And courtship is the repentance for dating. It's the best way to understand it. You know, no longer will we talk about dating. We'll now talk about courtship. And, And what courtship is, is that's where, you know, the parents get together and make a decision about which child will marry which child and then disseminate that information to the children. Right? And then everything will be better. And of course, nothing's better. Except maybe there's less incidents of fornication. But I seriously doubt there's less incidents of divorce. Now, am I saying parents shouldn't be involved? No, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that simply changing the labeling from dating to courtship doesn't change anything. It just doesn't change anything. What we see here is a dance. And dances always involve movement, reciprocity, opposition, emphasis here, emphasis there, the music, rhythm. You know, that's what a dance is. And the proposition that this servant and Abraham and Isaac are engaged in with Rebecca and her family is a dance. And what we have to do is get the elements of the dance down instead of trying to put ourselves into a rigid straitjacket and think that this is how you do it. 
This is not how you do it. What you have to do is, is sort of submit to the dance, and God is the one that will carry you through if you ask him to. Now, what are the elements of the dance? Well, number one, parents should have authority over who their children marry. I don't know how we've gotten away from that. As a matter of fact, your parents should be deciding when you're young who you will marry. When you're young, they should be praying for it. When you're young, they should be inclining your affections before you hit puberty to the right direction. They should be making it clear to you when you're young, you can't marry outside of God's covenant community. When you're very young, they should be making it very clear to you when you're young that if you find your heart starting to be attracted to a woman, come to you first and ask you whether your heart can be attracted to that woman or that man. Because if their hearts are bonded to that person, it's too late. And so you grow up knowing you do that. Your parents should be spotting Young women and young men, and saying, what about her? What about him? What about her? What about him? It's a dance. Okay? And you should want to know what your parents want for you. Do you think Isaac knew what his father wanted for him? You bet. But there was reciprocity. And so she had a choice. And that's the other thing, is if your father doesn't know who you like, he's an idiot. He isn't a father. What father could possibly be oblivious to the preferences of his daughter? I mean, you have to work at that. A good father is going to know where your heart's going to go. A good father is going to study the inclinations. A good father, I can remember when Michael was very young, saying, Michael, when you grow up, I don't want you to marry a project. I didn't say that to any of the rest of my kids. Back when she was 14, Heidi tells me that uh, we were up in Wisconsin. And I don't remember, and Heidi isn't here, right? She's in the nursery. I don't remember exactly what I said to her, but I said something like to her. She repeated it in the first service. Um, Joseph, where are you? Do you remember what I said to her? Anyhow, we were back in our old town where we used to live, and I, I said something to Heidi like she was 14, and we had moved to Bloomington, and I said to her, you know, Heidi, Mary Lee and I were talking on the way up, and, and we think that you and Joseph should get married. And Heidi said in the early service that at that point, Joseph was taller than she was, so she decided that that would be good. <laughs> and so guess what? They got married. Now, you laugh at this, but it's things like that that determine the future contentment and happiness of your children. You pray you plead with God, you train your children, you make it clear that they may not choose their own spouse without you being consulted. And I don't mean consulted. I mean you on board because they have to have your permission. But you know that you're not going to marry them to someone that they don't love. Does that all work? Isn't that beautiful? Now, I don't have time. I'd like to preach on this for four weeks. There's so much in this chapter. And it's beautiful. But let's just go to the end as we finish.
because this is why I chose it for this week. Look at the end. The very end, starting with verse 62. Isaac, verse 63, went out to meditate. The the verse can also be translated, the, the, the word, it can be translated prayer. Isaac went out to meditate to pray in the field toward evening. So what was he doing at night? Was he at the bar? Was he going to Blockbuster to get a video? Was he out working? He was before God in prayer. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. Rebecca lifted up her eyes. Imagine the music in a movie right now. Okay, Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, what did she do? What did she do? Come on, tell me. She got off the camel. What was she showing? She was showing respect. She got off the camel. This man's walking out in the field. She said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? I think she already knew. And the servant said what? He is my master's son. Is that what he said? He is my master. Patriarch, servant, son. And then all of a sudden, you see that? He is my master. And here, the master takes his wife from the hand of his servant. That's authority. That's authority. Such a dance. So beautiful. Everything about this. He is my master. All right. And then she took her veil and covered herself. And oh, go ahead. Plead with me. Come on. Say please. Come on. Say please. You better say it louder than that. Please. You want me to scratch your ears? Say, please, be honest. I put up a blog post yesterday about 10 years ago now, being in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, at a Mennonite gathering where I was to debate a former uh, professor at Gordon-Conwell, who was then at Fuller, David Scholler, over the issue of women pastors and elders, the credentialing. And I was representing the biblical position, and Professor Scholler was, I am not being humorous. I am not being humorous. There is only one biblical position. And those who say that they honor Scripture, who deny the authority of Adam over Eve, are liars. Now, we all lie about Scripture when it suits our purposes. They're no different than you. I just don't know what your particular lie about Scripture is. But do not ever ask me to dignify that position by saying that it's just another perspective on Scripture. It's, it's no perspective on Scripture. It's, it's, it's a microscope on the culture that we live in. And it has nothing to do with Scripture. Except the end of Judges, each man did that which was right in her own eyes. All right, now, I'm debating, and I'm taking the biblical position, and David Scholler is doing a perfect job of representing the ideological idolatries of our time. And 
it was so uncanny because here I am looking out over about 700 people in, a, in, in an assembly hall in a Christian school, and we're debating whether or not Adam should have authority over Eve. And it's a sea of white because all the women there have these little doily thingamabobbies on their heads. What's that about? And you know that those women that had those doily things on their head a couple of months later voted to credential women. And I, I think it, I, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that they had those little doily things on their heads when they voted to credential women. As, as Monty Python would say, where's the ambiguity? Uh, I mean, it's just ludicrous. Listen, all through history, everywhere, always, all through time, women have gone into their weddings with a veil on. And it is hilarious that they, you do it yet today. But you have absolutely no idea what that veil means. None. It's just part of the bridal, what's it called? The bridal, no, no, no. The, come on, give me the right word. What? No, it's not a costume, the bridal. Trousseau, yes. The bridal trousseau. And that's not a prime minister of Canada. Or an underwater diver. Okay. She got off the camel and she veiled herself. And what that veil says is, I am a woman and I will show my respect and submission the man. That's what it means. And you know what? When women don't do that, it's a scandal to the angels. You know, if you, t- if you look at a picture of anybody coming out of a Roman Catholic or a Protestant church back in the 50s, in Life magazine, test me on this, just do it. Catholic Protestant, every woman, as she greets the pastor coming out of church, will have what? She'll have She'll have a head covering. And it just, it just, it, um, let's see. Um, it just fries me today how we have all these symbols of submission to authority in our wedding services. And a perfect conspiracy to be ignorant of the meaning of every single one of them. You know? The father walking his daughter up the aisle to the groom. What's that about? Don't ask me. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> and who will give this woman to... No, no. What, what we say today is who will give this man to be married to this woman? Funny. Even the rabid feminists will never say that. <laughs> because they know it would look what? Immodest. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And Lyndon Johnson said, her mother and I do. But up until then, never, ever, ever, I do, says the father of the household. And if he doesn't have his wife's consent, he's an idiot. All kinds of authority in a wedding ceremony. And the veil. What is that veil? That veil is a sign of submission to the husband. 
Do you know that Princess Di, in the wedding ceremony, did what 2,000 years of Christians have done? Do you know that the wedding ceremony of Thomas Cranmer, of the Reformation of Anglicanism, which we still use today, dearly beloved, we're gathered here in the presence of God, in the sight of God, in the presence of these witnesses, to join this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Marriage is an honorable state, and it is ordained by God for... All right. That service, if you do liturgical history, goes right back to the serum rite of the Roman Catholic Church in the 11th century. It's the same. The testimony is that a wife is to submit to her husband. And the testimony all through history is that when she marries her husband, she is to have a sign of authority on her head for the sake of the angels. Ah, now go ahead. Tell me. Move on, Pastor. People, listen. I remember very well being in a long discussion in Bristol over the issue of authority of men and women. My mother, we were visiting you, Sandy, and we drove mud back. And in the car on the way back, my mother, who's about as tough and bright a woman as you'll ever meet in your life, I'm telling you, she's a force to be contended with. All the women in the Bailey household are. All right? Those of you that know that's true, would you raise your hand just so the visitors know? It is true. All right. Okay. I'm not making it up. All right. We're driving back and we're talking about feminism today and how it's destroyed the, the obedience of Christians to the plain text of Scripture. And so we get talking about head coverings, and my mother says this. It was dark, and we were only about an hour and a half away from your house. I remember distinctly. She's in the back seat. We're in the front seat. And so I say, well, what about head coverings? And she says, you know something? In this evil day, if the feminists are going to say to us, well, you don't use head coverings, maybe it's time we start using them again. Okay? Do you know that R.C. Sproul's wife, Vesta, wears a head covering in worship? Now, do any of you know Vesta? You know Vesta. Would you call her a wallflower? <laughs> Let me tell you, Vesta is a trip. <laughs> she is just absolutely delightful. She is every bit as bright as R.C. is. She has a sense of humor to kill for. She's beautiful. She's strong-willed. She wears a head covering. Why? Because if people watch them, they may not believe that she submits to her husband's authority. And you you find that hard to believe because you've watched R.C. Festa wears a head covering. Calvin uses, refers to head coverings as things that are culturally related to culture. In other words, not universals. And yet he refers to head coverings as universals. It's very hard to get a line on Calvin on this thing. I'm not convinced that head coverings are universally required in worship services. But I am convinced that today they are required by those who want to be 
completely clear to the culture around them and to contextualize the gospel. (laughs) In other words, today, if you're a Christian woman, you know what your glory is? It'll make you stick out beautifully, just like like tulips at springtime. What will really make you stick out is if you demonstrate a gentle and a quiet spirit. And if you call your husband Lord, like Sarah did. Now, you remind, those of you that don't know this, I'm just quoting Scripture. Ain't me. All right. What would really make women stick out today if they love the Lord is to live a life that shows they know the difference between a man and a woman. And they know it's the glory of woman to submit to her husband. And then they'll glory in it. And it won't be something they try to hide, something they try to, you know, uh, uh, um, smoke and mirrors, you know. Something they try to, like, rip the pillow open, shake all the um, feathers in the air so nobody can see anything. That's what all the emergent church does. You know, just try to make the distinction between the world and the people of God completely unclear. And particularly at the point of authority, and particularly at the point of the authority of one sex. It's like all a smoke and mirrors show. And I say, hey, let's contextualize the gospel. And they say, yeah, let's contextualize the gospel. Let's hide it. I say, no, let's contextualize the gospel. Let's make it so clear that nobody can miss it and they know what it is to go from death to life in Jesus Christ. And here's the end of it. The servant, verse 66, told Isaac all the things he had done. And then you remember that savage, that, that prehistoric man. You remember that ancient patriarch, right, who would grab her by the hair and drag her into the cave and have his way with her. Here he is. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Happy Mother's Day. This is, this is godliness. This is godliness. Godliness in the particulars, not ethereal godliness, not Jesus. I love Jesus godliness. This is, I love my mother and I love my wife, godliness. Tenderness. Intimacy. Comfort. Three years ago, his mother had died. And he was still mourning her. And then God sent him a wife. And he was comforted. One final comment. Do you know that if you go back 500 years to 300 years and read the commentaries on this text, do you know what all the commentaries say? They all look at it curiously and say, why did God put such mundane details about the lives of particular persons into Scripture? Because they want to be about the covenant, the law. You know, the nation of Israel. They want to be about 
plate tectonics, not little fissures and cracks. You know why? Because they didn't live in the culture we live in, and they didn't have the devastation that we have today. But God knew what you and I needed. And this text is your Bible. And this is how you should live. This is helpful. It's doable. It's unbelievably contextual. So what, are you ashamed of it? Let me tell you. You want to know how it is to be a Christian? A Christian is Genesis chapter 24. It's that. And you say, oh, no, no, a Christian is somebody who's asked Jesus into their hearts. And I say, if you have asked Jesus into your hearts, you are Genesis 24. And if you have not asked Jesus into your hearts, you're not Genesis 24. And if you're not Genesis 24, you're not a Christian. And you say, oh, but many Christians aren't Genesis 24. I say, yeah, yeah, many Christians have been baptized in Great Britain, and 5% of them are in church on Sunday morning. So much for the Christians. Let's pray. Father, we...